Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show. Good to have you with us here. We're having a conversation with Victor Laval about his latest book. Uh, he's written six books, three novels, two novellas. Uh, last time you heard him on the book show here, we were talking about The Ballad of Black Tom, uh, his most recent novella. Now we're talking about this incredible novel he's written called The Changeling. Uh, and, uh, Victor, so let's, as we promised our listeners before we went to break, um, let's um, dive into this book. And I think it might be good to kind of set it up uh, at the very beginning, as you, we were talking about uh, during the break, about uh, you kind of taking us to, to, to uh, how you start this. Okay. So uh, should, should I say that uh, uh, I'm going to read the first chapter, or should I just dive in? Tell us what, tell, tell us what we're about to hear, yes. Okay. So, so uh, I'm going to read the opening chapter of the novel. Um, so this should be pretty straightforward. And let me just tell our listeners to, to stay tuned here because there are how many chapters in this book? 120? 120 or so, yeah. And they're short so chapters. So we're going to read all of them. So you won't be here for the next two hours. It's not a long chapter. <laughs> it's a short chapter, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this fairy tale begins in 1968 during a garbage strike. In February, New York City's sanitation workers refused to pick up trash for eight straight days. 100,000 tons of garbage filled the sidewalks, spilled into the streets. Rats ran laps alongside morning joggers. Rubbish fires boiled the air. The five boroughs had been given up for dead. Still, there was some cracked magic in the air because that was when Lillian and Brian met. Each had journeyed from far-flung lands to find one another in Queens. Neither could have guessed the wildness that falling in love would unleash. Lillian Kagwa emigrated from Uganda, while Brian West arrived from the only slightly less foreign territory of Syracuse. This daughter of East Africa and son of upstate New York met at a cut-rate modeling agency on Northern Boulevard. Neither was a client. The week of the garbage strike, Lillian got hired as a secretary at the agency, greeting guests at the front desk. A pleasant sight for folks strolling sidewalks saddled with week-old waste. Brian, a parole officer, had been paying occasional visits to the agency's founder, Pavel Arsenyev, one of his parolees, who'd spent four years in prison for fraud. Brian didn't believe Pavel had gone legit. But that week, Brian became focused less on Mr. Arsenyev and more on the new secretary who greeted him when he arrived. Meeting her felt like finding a rose growing in a landfill. Brian dropped by the modeling agency four times that week. Despite his immediate attraction, Brian had a habit of mispronouncing Lillian Kagwa's last name. And Lillian kept mistaking Brian for other white men. Hardly kismet. Still, Brian West, short, stocky, and persistent, simply wouldn't quit. And on the days when he didn't show up, Lillian, to her own surprise, found she missed him. Lillian Kagwa had come from Jinja, the second largest city in Uganda, where she'd lived through the centuries. Should I be, can I begin that again? Sorry. Please do. Go ahead. Lillian Kagwa had come from Jinja, the second largest city in Uganda, where she'd lived through the country's emancipation from Britain and its eventual homegrown rule by Milton Abote. Abote used the army and his secret police, the general service unit, to rule the land. They spread wickedness wherever they went. In 1967, Lillian and three cousins were traveling to the capital, Kampala, when they were pulled over by three men claiming to be agents of the GSU. The four cousins sat quietly as the agents inspected their identification, then demanded the only male cousin, Arthur, come out and open the trunk. Arthur didn't want to leave Lillian and his sisters and hesitated. In that moment, one agent leaned in and casually shot Arthur in the stomach. Lillian and her cousins were temporarily deafened by the sound, blinded by the muzzle flash, but Lillian still sensed the agent who'd fired the gun pawing inside the car to pull out the keys. Lillian at the wheel shifted the car into drive and shot off before her senses had returned to her, weaving across the two-lane road like a drunk. 
The agents fired at the car but couldn't pursue it. Their own vehicle had run out of gas. They'd set up the checkpoint to steal a suitable vehicle and would have to wait for another. Lillian reached Kampala in half an hour, speeding the whole way. Arthur died long before that. An incident like this hardly counted as newsworthy. Uganda as a whole was going buck wild, and Lillian Kagwa wanted out. One year later, Lillian secured a visa to the United States. In 1968, Lillian came to New York. She was 25 and knew no one. But because of Uganda's British rule, she already spoke the king's English, and this made her transition easier. One of the reasons Mr. Arsenyev hired her at the modeling agency was because her command of English was so much better than his. She made the business sound serious, legitimate, though Brian West's suspicions were right. The whole thing was a scam. Lillian didn't know this when she accepted the work. All she knew was the job paid twice the state minimum wage, three bucks an hour. Back in Uganda, she hadn't been able to find work of any kind, so she cherished the gig. And what was a garbage strike compared with state-sanctioned murder? The agency, Glamour Time, was run out of a windowless second-floor office near Queensboro Plaza, remote from any hub of high fashion but centrally located for soaking the aspiring models of working-class queens. Potential clients could join the agency as long as they had headshots. Luckily, Mr. Arsenyev had a small studio right there at the agency and could snap the shots himself for free. For a certain young woman, sorry, luckily Mr. Arsenyev had a small studio right there at the agency and could snap the shots himself for a fee. For a certain, for certain young women, he offered to take the shots after hours, just the two of them. The streets of New York were overrun with uncollected garbage, but Glamour Time carried its own stink. The only honest aspect of the business was the East African woman answering phones out front. Mr. Arsenyev's business might have run just fine for quite a while, soaking hopeful young women for years, except his damn parole officer had made the front office into his second home. How were you going to run a decent fraud when a cop was stopping by every other morning? Brian West was bad for business. And since he was smitten with Lillian, that meant Lillian Kagwa was bad for business. So Mr. Arsenyev fired her. Not the smartest plan. But Mr. Arsenyev wasn't bright. Now Brian pursued Pavel relentlessly, an inspector Yaver from Onondaga County. Charging for the headshots wasn't illegal, but running a photo studio without a permit was enough to count as a violation of parole. Pavel Arsenyev went back to jail. Brian West got a commendation. Lillian Kagwa needed a new job. She worked as an administrative secretary at a law firm in Midtown Manhattan. The new job paid less. She moved into a smaller apartment. She cut off all communications with Brian. He'd cost her a good job, and the commute to Midtown added a half hour of travel time each way. So no, she did not want to get dinner and a movie with Brian. Thank you. Anyway, she was young, and it was New York City where a lot more fun was to be had than back in Jinja. They met in 1968, but didn't go on their first real date until eight years later. Brian West gave Lillian room, backed off by a burrow. He rented a place on Staten Island, but he couldn't stop thinking of her. Why? What was it about Lillian? He couldn't quite explain it. It was as if she'd cast a spell. Brian West had been the only child of two wildly unromantic drunks. At 12, Brian had a job selling candy at the Elmwood Theater. He made the mistake of proudly displaying his earnings to his father, Frank. He expected a pat on the shoulder, words of congratulations. Instead, the boy endured a strong-arm robbery right in his own living room. His dad bought a case of Genesee beer with the money. Mom and dad finished it before bedtime. A household like that will either break you or toughen you up. Maybe both. What was waiting on a woman to forgive you compared with having your father beat you up and steal your first paycheck? Late in 1976, it finally happened. 
Brian West and Lillian Cagua went on a date. They'd both been 25 when they first met during the week of the garbage strike, but now they were 33. Lillian had met a lot of men during those intervening years, and Brian benefited from the comparison. He worked hard, didn't drink, saved his money, and paid his debts. Funny how much she valued such qualities now. The only hiccup came at dinner when Brian talked about how much he wanted children, the chance to be a husband and a father. As soon as he'd seen her at glamour time, he'd sensed she would be a wonderful mother. When he finished talking, she reminded him, gently, that this was their first date. Maybe they could wait to make wedding plans until after the movie, at least. To Brian's credit, he didn't act wounded or angry. He laughed. He didn't know it. But it was at this moment that Lillian truly fell for him. He took her to see Rocky. It wouldn't have been Lillian's choice, but halfway through the movie, she started to enjoy herself. She even saw herself on the screen, a fierce dreamer. That's what this movie was about. And wasn't that her? She liked to think so. Maybe that was why Brian brought her to see this picture, to show her something about himself that he could never put into words. He told her the story of being robbed by his father, and she told him about Arthur getting gut shot in the car. And now here they both were in a darkened Times Square theater together. A pair of survivors. It seemed so unlikely. All the life that had led them here, as improbable as myth. In the dark, she held his hand. Though they wouldn't have sex for another three hours, it would be accurate to say their first child, their only child, was conceived right then. A thought, an idea, a shared dream. Parenthood is a story two people start telling together. By April 1977, Lillian was showing. Brian found them a two-bedroom apartment in Jackson Heights. Their son came in September. Brian thought it would be weird to name a half-black kid Rocky, so instead they named him Apollo. Brian liked to carry the newborn in the crook of one arm, cooing to him, you are the god, Apollo. Good night, my little son. And they lived happily ever after, at least for a few years. By Apollo's fourth birthday, Brian West was gone. Brian hadn't run off with another woman or skipped town to move back to Syracuse. The man might as well have been erased from existence. He couldn't be found because he'd left no trail, neither breadcrumbs nor credit card receipts. Gone, disappeared, vanished. When Apollo was born, Brian and Lillian thought they'd reached the end of the story, but they'd been wrong. The wildness had only begun. Mm -hmm. Wow. <clears throat> so, as you read that first chapter, I was thinking about how you are as a writer, all these clues you drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a good fairy tale. <laughs> in the beginning of the story. Really, I didn't even notice that until, because, you know, you read the book. Of course, yeah. I didn't go back to read the first chapter again, not yet. And uh, and um, you do that. That's great. But it's all there, right? It's, yeah. It's uh, all there. <laughs> yeah. I, I Like, uh, one of the things I really uh, uh, hold by is I remember uh, a teacher maybe or something saying, a writing teacher saying, um, you won't know how to write the beginning of your book till you've written the end of the book. And mm -hmm. uh, I really think that's true in part because uh, like none of the, uh, most of the details that now when you hear it again, you see like, oh, that's a clue, that's a clue, that's something being planted. Uh, none of that stuff obviously was there. I didn't know that it was gonna come into the story. But then it's, what's nice is when I revise the story, second and third and fifth time however many times i can start to put those things in there and then when the book is published i seem brilliant <laughs> <laughs> a little self-deprecating but you <laughs> but you are i mean i think this is a, 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 that's great <laughs> no, but I, you know, the thing, I have to say, like, as a writer, one of the things um, 
for whatever members of the your the audience are like people who want to write as well. Uh, one of the big mistakes I used to make before I was writing was thinking like um, the book that I got at the bookstore, the way it came at the bookstore, like it's just the way it always was. And man, this person must be so such a genius right. to have all these things. And I think I don't think it's food. like until you start doing it, you don't know all the work. Like I can't. I'm guessing. I can't imagine all the work that goes into you and your producer putting together even just one segment of one show so that I don't even notice like all the background work you did, all the questions you asked to lead to this or that, all the editing you had to do to take out all the gasps of air mm-hmm. that uh, people do. And if it works really well, no one will know how hard you worked to make this thing work. And it's feeling like it's very similar with the book. Um, uh, so it's the best feeling in the world when someone says, like, I just tore through this and I couldn't believe how fast I was moving. And I said, you don't know how hard I had to work to get this thing to feel like it took no time. No, and, and, and also just work in, 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 in managing the words. And that too, yes, it's for sure. So... Um... You know, one of the, and I love Lillian, the mother. She's a very oh. powerful character. Um, really powerful character. Um, yeah, by the end, she really is like, a, I wanted her to almost feel like a, like a goddess or something by the end, like a mm-hmm. very powerful being. She is a powerful being. She's a very powerful being. You could tell that from the opening of the book, but then <laughs> throughout, I mean, she, she unfolds and, and the, what happens between... Her son Apollo and she, and 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 the interactions that happen, and then the, the the anger, the pain, the love between them, that that flows through the book, um, you know. And I, the other piece of this book I think is important is is well, the couple of pieces here I want to get to. What, what one is the is taking the realism of our existence every day, living in New York. Uh, for, I'm a few living in New York. Living in New York as a black man. Um, living in New York, um, and we talk about a bit uh, how you deal with race, which you do very subtly and very powerfully, I think, throughout the whole book. Um, that that you that, but then to be able to twist in the myth, twist in the other world, twist in the magic realism, twist in the uh, the mystery of mythical existence, if it is in fact mythical. Um, I mean, that, every writer doesn't do that, and every mind doesn't go there. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, in some ways, like, uh, being, um, like I said, a kid who loved comic books and, uh, and uh, as, you know, and movies and all this stuff, uh, but also being a black man, um, something that would often occur to me would be, um, I wonder how this would change if the person doing the thing looked more like me. Right. Or like the people that I knew. So, like, for instance, uh, I really still to this day would love to see Idris Elba as James Bond. But there's a part of me that if like I was writing his James Bond movie, he would keep getting pulled over by the police in his Aston Martin. <laughs> like he couldn't get to go stop the villain because these cops would just keep stopping him. And then when he said, you know, I work for the government, they'd be like, that's fine. Uh, ID uh, and don't move quick. You know, <laughs> right. uh Right. And then, you know, like a like a th- those kind of details, like um, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but like a a lot of the fantastical stuff, people treat it as escapism because they want to not think about the politics of the real world. But if it is left as pure escapism, then my feeling is all you're really doing is supporting the politics that already exist. You know, like if you don't highlight that. Captain America can do all he wants because he is a state-funded uh, character, and he, specifically that he is a white man who this, this, and this. Like all those things are unspoken parts of why he gets to be the big hero in the movie, why he gets to do what he does, and never get questioned, right? Like he, uh, thanks to him, this and that blows up, but no one ever says Captain America. I just don't think you have the education to do this job. <laughs> Right. They'll never they might say we don't like that you blew up a building, but they will never say like mm, you just don't seem to have the right qualities for this for the promotion that we want to give you. Right. And I love 
fantastical stories and all that stuff. But I love it even more if if you can uh, sort of ground it in some kind of real world political conversation, uh, and that you have to see the fantastic make room for that kind of stuff. And there's not enough in our in our media, no matter what the source is, whether it's the written word or whether it's uh, uh, whether it's a novel or a book or or a movie, a play, where black men and women have lives and normal lives and loving lives and complex lives and not marginal, well, marginalized that, lives. Well, I, I remember uh, seeing something that the like thinking like for say particularly let's say for TV or movies. That like uh, I don't you know it almost sometimes seems like well why would you have a black character in this show or in this movie unless they're just going to experience the racism teaching moment right. you know like a, the black friend is there so that you can have a serious moment about race or class or gender but it wouldn't be that the black friend is there because the black friend lives next door and has her own story that is equally interesting and powerful. And it's all about how she's trying to start a, uh, she's trying to raise money for a startup app that will, uh, you know, that will help people uh, learn how to read on their phone or something like that. It could never be something as sort of non-raced or non-problem, problematic right. as that. Right. Um, but I, in a way I kind of love, I feel, I have to admit like slightly happy because that enormous blind spot excuse me, that enormous blind spot means that a writer like me has all this room to tell original stories uh, in places and in genres and all this stuff that in theory they could have already done all this work, but they just didn't. And so I get to play in that area and tell new stories that still play with these genres and these conventions that people can enjoy. Exactly. And we can still enjoy your witches and monsters that slide yeah. through our reality. <laughs> and and at no point does the witch have to use like a a racial epithet, and then we stop and say like we need to t t uh, teach this witch about the history of the civil rights struggle. They're like they're like no, right. <laughs> it's just going to be a fight with the witch, but the person fighting them is black. That's all. Right. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's enough right now. And and we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of go one one place before we finish, which is that. As in the other novel that I read, the, the, your novella about Black Tom, this is also based on, this comes out of another book. It comes out of a tale that inspired this, which was Maurice Sendak's Outside Over There. Not his most famous yes. book, but nevertheless. But one of his creepiest. But one of his creepiest. And uh, the way that I came across, I didn't know that book as a kid. My wife, um, actually, her parents used to read it to her. And so she had a copy on the shelf, on the bookshelf. We had like, we got married, expecting our son. Uh, and we just collected all the books that we might someday want to read to uh, our son and then later our daughter. And that was one of them. And it didn't even have the book jacket. So I was just pulling it off one day and I opened it up. And the first joy of it is I see it's signed by Maurice Sendak. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of fun, right? Wow. And I started reading the book. I started reading it though. And I came to my wife and I said, this story is really disturbing. You're parents used to read this to you when you were a child and then I her response was the best she said yeah and I loved it it was one of my favorite books and what I also it taught me like our son too when he was younger and our daughter uh parents think I have to protect my kids from these like uh from spooky stories or from uh things that are a little bit disturbing I'm not talking about like you know graphic murder but like fairy tales that are a little disturbing but our kids loved the book too and it and it was sort of it made me think like oh you know this book has become like central to my family's life and it started becoming central to the life of the book too uh and anyway i think there's an old saying you know that all books are just made up of other books mm. and i like that idea a lot so i just thought well let me just so it'll be made up of outside over there and to kill a mockingbird is in there a few yes. other books and let's just name all the books We've been talking with Victor Laval, his book, the latest novel, The Changeling. And as you know, I, I never interview authors unless I enjoy the book or what use of interviewing the author. Um, <laughs> and this book that talks about these incredible people, Brian and Emma, and their child, and this dream that haunts him and 
the world unraveling and coming back together and this weird, strange characters and islands and haunted forests all happening in <laughs> New York City, twisting us through race and gender. It's an amazing book, and you need to pick it up and just relax over a bunch of days and read it, The Changeling by Victor Laval. Victor, once again, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your work, and thank you for taking your time with us today. Hey, it's always a pleasure and an honor and just fun to talk with you. Thank you. Mark Steiner, welcome. Good to have you with us here. And we're about to have a conversation with Victor Laval, our second conversation with Victor. And this is his latest novel, most recently out, The Changeling. Uh, if you want to find something that tells us about our urban world, our black world, our world of mixture, our world of children and being fathers and mothers and what it means, our world that gets wrapped up in fairy tales and worlds we don't even know exist but some of us think might exist anyway, maybe not, that's The Changeling. And yes, it's The Changeling from books you may have known as a child. So, uh, Victor, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Uh, it's great to be back. So this is an amazing novel. Um, Thanks. It really, it really is. I mean, uh, so uh, I think someone reviewed it in the, in the uh, NPR. I read an interview the other day where they said the changeling is itself a changeling of a book. I like that. <laughs> that yeah, I, th I thought that was accurate. I thought that was right. So, I had another friend on... Uh, uh, a friend uh, nearby would uh, text me sometimes and would say, like, you know, this book, I thought I knew what this book was, and then it became another book, <laughs> like, halfway through. And I said, yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Well, that's what I told you when we did the the uh, the Battle of Black Tom. Yes. That's, because I had no idea. It was the first book of yours I read, so I had no idea where it was going to go, thinking it was just a mystery. And then yeah. it took me someplace I did not expect to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very different. So, so, you know, just before we jump in the heart of the book, just for you, I mean, uh, as you developed as a, as a thinker and a writer and as a, as a human being, as a man, I mean, th this, this world of, of taking our reality and weaving it in with the fantasies of our mythologies, where did that come from for you? How did that, what did that kind of way of thinking come from? Well, I mean, I grew up on comic books and uh, myths, you know, like uh, books of myths, uh, whether it's like Anansi stories or uh, Norse myths, Scandinavian myths. Uh, for whatever reason, I was always interested in that kind of stuff. My mom was w uh, willing to buy it. And then comic books, half of comic books really are just retellings or rethinking of old fairy tales and myths. Uh, you know, sort of like modernized in this way or that. So I felt like I was like uh, steeped in it from a very young age. So, and but you you seem to also love um, fairy tales. I mean, that's you you, you. you know, I was thinking about this when you described in this book, and I wasn't going to jump here at the beginning, but I'll jump here anyway, just because I found it so interesting. You you write the, so you write this piece, uh, and, and this is one. Parry, let's just talk about this for a moment, just because it's what you research and think about, but it's interesting. This is talking about the, the role of fairy tales. And I'll let you read your own book, but I, I'll just not have a habit here. I'll just read it unless you want to read yeah, it. Yeah, please. On, no, no, please. It's on page 244. So you go, you say, Okay. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> fairy tales are not for children. They didn't used to be anyway. They were the stories peasants told to each other around the fire after a long day, not to their kids. This was how adults talked to each other. Fairy tales became stories for kids in the 1700s. Around that time, this weird new group started appearing in parts of Europe, the merchant class. Merchants were making money, and they wanted to live better than the lower classes did. This meant that there were new rules about how to behave, both for adults and for the kids. Fairy tales changed accordingly. Now they had to have a moral, something to train those children in the new rules, which is when they started turning into S blank. <laughs> which we can't say on the air. A bad right. fairy tale has some simple goddamn moral. A great fairy tale tells the truth. So you went back and really kind of, the heart of the fairy tale um, is it part of the heart of this book, but it's it's also the part of who we are no matter what culture we come from. Yes, that's right. I mean, like, uh, so that, I, that those two paragraphs are uh, 
like really on some level almost like this the center of the book um in part because i realized like when i was working on the book after a while that the things that i wanted to talk about even though um you know there's lots of weird and wild stuff having there's a secret island in the middle of the east river there's changelings and trolls and all this kind of stuff what i really wanted to do was have a conversation with all the other adults in the room as i imagined it and talk about a few things i talk about you know what did you expect to be when you thought about becoming a parent uh what did you think it would be like uh were you scared or were you excited and more importantly maybe the most important thing what is it like now that you've done it and to me those were all some of the most serious questions you can discuss right um but i also knew i was telling the story with all those weird and wild elements but as i and as i read and all this stuff i was trying to figure out like how do i balance the fairy tale stuff and these serious adult questions and with a little research and learning i realized oh i don't have to balance it it's already made for that it's just actually the last whatever many years of commercial uh movies and television that has made me think these things like fairy tales are for children that in fact no 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 the older way is the way you want to talk and i think if i get it right any adult who reads this will understand that i'm talking to them and i also thought reading that part and reading parts of this book like that um that in some ways it's almost and i don't want to put words or meaning into things you didn't mean but for me as i was reading it it was it was like you it was like this critique of capitalism critique of our modern world critique of race and who we are all through the book and this was a piece of that. Oh, I would. You could put those words in my mouth too. <laughs> uh, uh, a critique of uh, capitalism and of the systems that run this world and run this country. Um, uh, I would say is probably a part of everything I write. Uh, but in this one in particular, it's definitely there because you know one of the other. I don't want to say tricks exactly, but one of the other sort of deals that this world sort of makes with you can be like, okay, so you're on your own, or maybe you're in a relationship with somebody. The two of you want to live off the grid. You want to live hand to mouth and live this sort of like soulful, artistic, rebellious life. That's fine. But then you have kids and suddenly the world says, but don't you want something good for your children? Don't you want better for your children than you had? And of course you do because you love your children. But then there's all these bargains that you start to make about like, okay, so then you should think about what kind of neighborhood you live in. You don't really want to share your tax base with that group of people, do you? There's all these like messed up uh, Faustian bargains you start making and capitalism or the system that exists knows that the easiest way to get you to essentially, I think at least, to sell your soul is to let your kid's future be the salesman. Hmm. That's really an interesting way to put it. Right. And Because who's going to say, I don't want my kids to have something good? You know, like, I've never met that person. But what the, what the system doesn't say or, what, you know, what the world doesn't say is like, but if you get this, it's like that old, uh, do you remember that old, uh, there was a short story, but also a movie or two. This box just comes in the mail to this woman's house and there's a button inside the box and it says, if you press this box, you will get... Hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> right. but someone somewhere in the world will die. Right? Will you do it? You know, and that on some level is kind of capitalism. You know, or at least it's moving up into the upper regions of capitalism. There's probably a cost for the things for the benefits you have, but if you don't see it, maybe you don't have to think about it. Exactly, and 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 your job as a writer in a creative way is to expose that. Yes, as to I mean, is to sort of turn back and say, you're going to have to think about it. I mean, you have the leisure time to read a book. That's great. So here's a book that's going to make you feel bad about having leisure time. <laughs> <laughs> so let me, I I I just you know wanders through this book and how gender and and race are are intertwined with all that and how they really define so much and we're still wrestling with what they mean for us because of what they've become in this world in the last four or five hundred years. You know, I mean, the, and, and your characters 
this, especially in this book, both gender and race, um, especially gender, are at the forefront of all that. Yeah, I think in this book, uh, one of the things that was uh, really important to me was I, I knew I was writing about a marriage, two people who genuinely love each other, uh, but then, and, or, and then because of that love, they decide to have a kid, but then having a kid is one of the surest ways to put a strain on the bond of love between two people because you're just, not because of anything bad, but because you're tired, you're overworked, you're struggling to keep things going. Uh, all that kind of stuff, you can sort of lose sight of each other. And uh, I felt like if I'm going to write the trials of being married and having kids in a way that's honest, it can't just be that I write about what's hard and what's good from the man's point of view. Uh, you have to find, there has to be ways that the woman is also, um, even though Apollo is our protagonist, uh, there have to be ways that uh, a reader, a close reader, a concerned reader will see Emma's struggles in this and that her that on some level her struggles and her battles are really in opposition to her husband's uh, struggles and battles and triumphs like that, that the two of them are in it together and that on some level they are, you know, they're bonded together, but they're also at war with each other and that a lot about uh, the world kind of forces them into that feeling about each other. And there's there's a, 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 an otherworldliness to both of them from the beginning. That's not... A, well, I... Go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I was going to say, necessarily not of this place, or maybe it is of this place. Well, you know, in both their cases, like, so both of them, one of the things I enjoyed about this, uh, writing this novel was taking the time to really uh, tell you who these people were like before things get really bad, we spend a fair bit of time about, we learn about Apollo's parents, how they met, uh, how they fell in love and uh, had uh, Apollo. We later find out about Emma and her sister and what happened to her parents. And while a lot of what happened to them is uh, sort of strange and almost otherworldly, I did also want to get across the idea that I, like my personal belief that um, there's no such thing as a boring person, really. Mm -hmm. If you are interested in people, any person is interesting and kind of magical, you know, and if I put together, like if you sat down with somebody and just asked the question, like, how did you come to exist? The amount of history and surprise and choice and chaos that had to come together to magically make this one living being, it's astounding to think about all the magic that goes any individual coming to existence. And I kind of wanted to get at that in giving their histories. You know, and it was, it, it, their histories were important about how blend who, where they came from and their stories, their origin stories, their family stories, um, and what made them as the, who they are. I mean, Apollo and Emma are the two people we're talking about, folks, who are the two main characters in this book among all the other characters that, that come through to us. And, and their, their, their love is very real. I mean, um, I mean that that I'm happy it feels that way. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, this was a. It's a. You know, look, this this book of yours is many things. One of the one of the things it is is a love story. For sure, for sure. Uh, I mean, I definitely I thought like the the thing that uh, for all the other stuff, the the big ideas and the dramatic stuff that the book would sink or swim on if the reader really believed that Apollo and Emma were in love, and that whatever they go through is all about that love being tested and then strengthened. Yeah, and it, it, just because it, as your skill as a writer, we just never know where it's going to end up, which is... Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess it would be, uh, like, there were versions of this where I thought, like, uh, up front, should I, like, almost, like, assure the reader, you know, this is all going to go this way or that way. And uh -huh. then, of course, you know, my editor said... Uh, well, why would you do that? People read books because they want to be put in tents, like they want to not know. They want to read to find out. So if you just tell them this or that, why would they read the whole thing? And I say, yeah, that's a good point. You're a good editor. <laughs> that's why we have editors. <laughs> that's why we have editors, to save us from our bad impulses. <laughs> no, but that, that's, that, and then just as a digression here for our listeners listening now, it's, this is a, I mean, I th the the book really does just hold your attention. It's a page turner. You just keep rolling with it because you don't know where it's going to take you next. And um, 
Yeah, this is, that, that gives me, a, let me just digress for a moment since I just said that. So, uh, you, you, as a writer, I mean, have you always wanted to be a writer? I mean, is that, were you, were you a writer as a child? Did you always play with words? I was always, I would say probably the first time I tried to write something was maybe 12 or so. So I, I think from a, I mean, relatively early age, uh, I knew I wanted to write. Uh, I mean, it's compared to like right now we have a, uh, two kids. Our oldest, our six-year-old son has already written seven books. As he's <laughs> He points out to me often. Uh, so, so he's got me beat by six. Um, <laughs> but setting him aside, uh, I knew at a relatively early age. I just, I just really loved it. And also if I'm being totally honest, um, I grew up in maybe a little bit of a chaotic household. And so there was also a way that reading and writing let me sort of shut all that out and just be by myself. And if I was reading or writing, I would be left alone, mm. which was actually preferable a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I loved it, but it was also a kind of uh, shelter. You know, that's interesting because, I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think about the characters in your book and how they're molded by their past and by their parents and by the, the, the strange pieces of otherworldliness that come through them. But And the differences in the book are striking between people, and I think it's important because sometimes we forget that sameness doesn't exist, though it does. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that, 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 that the pain that we... Well, there's, there was a poem by Ho Chi Minh, and the last four lines of the poem made me think a lot. I was thinking about that. I was reading a book. The last four lines in the poem are um, that one must walk through the cold and desolation of winter before you feel the warmth and beauty of spring. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, you know, that, I think that's that's you write about this, and that's existence. That's right, and uh, I mean, and the nice thing about that is that uh, you could that could be something you say about a lifetime, and that could be a thing you say each and every day. That's true, right? Each day there's probably a, a little period of winter, and then you get to the spring, at whatever you consider the spring part of the day. Uh, so I love that because it could talk about so many different cycles in life. You know, but on as but as a certainly as a writer, I remember um, uh, at some point having a teacher say like, uh, "Nobody wants to read a book where everything goes well for the person," <laughs> uh, right? Because mm-hmm. the on one level is just because it's like I don't know if you remember um, that old uh, there's an old line from the Matrix movie uh, where they talk about in the first version of the Matrix, the robots made everything in human beings' lives perfect. And all the human beings who are hooked up to the matrix, like uh, all rebelled against it because no human being could believe that life would be that good, you know. Um, and that I think that speaks to something deep, which is just that human beings want and need a, a degree of drama in a story or in a movie or whatever because life is full of those. Like I don't know anybody whose life is just totally easy. Right. It doesn't, you know. it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't exist. Even for the people who seem like it, right. you know, you pick away a little bit and you go like, oh, I didn't even know about all that. Right. <laughs> it's like, I want to come right back to the book here, the heart of it. I just got to say this one thing that made me think of something. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a blues song I, that has this incredible line in it that I used to quote to my kids all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they were little and they would say- Which they loved. They'd say, you see, it's not fair, this is not fair. Yeah. <laughs> the line is- Baby, fair is only something you pay to get on a bus. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, it's funny, I can imagine, uh, you know, that's like one of those things later, like a, 10 years later, whatever it is, that the kids can say back to dad. Right. <laughs> when you're like, I don't like you doing this. And they say, dad, fair is only something you pay on a bus. <laughs> and then you can't do anything because you gave them the line. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, um, <laughs> so as a writer, when you come up with these scenes and you really describe stuff that we don't really know about in everyday life, like when you go through this intense, I mean, not intense, but complex description 
of a massively powerful computer that's in the basement or somewhere else, like the Titan computer, or you get into what it, what what burials are like and, and, and what it means to dig a grave and the complexity of creating graves and creating coffins. Um, I mean, you know, so you, it's, it's almost like being an actor where you go off and kind of consume all this to bring it back. To yeah, work. I think that's right. And like uh, usually the way it works is um, like in an earlier draft, I'll know I have a scene. Like I know there's going to be a scene at – uh, let's say there's going to be a scene in a graveyard where the character and his friend in the middle of the night are going to try to dig up a grave. They're just going to do that. And I know that because story-wise, plot-wise, that has to happen. So then my next thought is usually like, okay, um, what's it like to – like? you should know a few things about what it's actually like to dig a grave. And so then I start doing the research. Uh, and that's where I found out like uh, somewhere in that research – I sort of shake out all the things and say, what's the most interesting things from what I learned? And some of that for me was, you know, I'm used to the old term, six feet deep. So it was very interesting to learn that the modern grave is only dug four feet deep. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, that's that's something I think probably most readers will go, huh, that's new. I did so I'll that. Add that's what that. I did. Huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, even the thing about like the concrete grave liner. Uh, you know, it's a it's a tiny thing, but I thought I'll throw it in there as one more extra step um, of new information, kind of thing. Um, and in truth, like a like in a, in a midpoint draft, there was probably about three times as much about all of that stuff. There was actually stuff. There was a whole chapter that went into the details and history about like different uh, tools that are used in cemeteries. And the history of this and that. And my editor was sort of like, you know, this is something people probably don't know. And this is a thing that most people don't need to know. <laughs> right. So let's cut that chapter. And I, and after a little pouting, uh, pouting and, <laughs> and being sad, I say, OK. Um, but the grave liner and the four feet deep, we keep that. So probably I shoved it down to a third. And then the last step is usually after I, I know what the scene needs to be for the plot. Then I figure out the, the research to find some interesting details. And then the last thing I try to do as much as possible uh, is to then go do the thing that I'm writing about so that I have physical details uh, about it. So in this case, I did not go to a graveyard and dig up a grave. <laughs> didn't I didn't that. do that. No. But I did go. My mom now lives uh, in a house that has a backyard. So I went to the backyard with a shovel and I dug not four feet by any stretch, but I dug up like the turf on top and dug a, probably not more than like eight inches down. And it took me a hell of a long time uh, and it was not easy, but it taught me like physically how much it made me sweat, uh, what my shoulders started to feel like, uh, how I was losing my breath. And I was like, OK, now I have the like the sensory details and I can put that into a into a scene. And so whenever I write every scene I write, it usually goes through at least those three steps. Hmm. So when you write, do, do you, do you plot things out so that you know what happens to in your head, what happened to Apollo and Emma and Brian or the mother Lillian or anybody else in that book before you finish the book? Or is it something that, is uncovered as you go. Uh, I do all that stuff. Uh, so all the organizing that I do comes afterward. Uh, uh, like the, 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 for me, like the first couple drafts of a story or of a, even a whole novel, I'm just, I just write until every single thing that is in my head has come out. Right. And I don't worry about what order it's in. It's just the order that it occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Like uh, the book right now, the there's a scene that starts on page, I think about page 125 in the kitchen, uh, a very hard scene for Apollo. For a long time, that was the beginning of the whole book. And uh, and it just went from there, basically like started with high drama and then continued being dramatic. Um, but my editor was saying like, you know, this scene, it opens the book, it's gripping and all this stuff but it would probably mean more if we knew who these people were. It would be better than sort of a, 
just simply like, a, you know, out of a bad horror movie where you just begin with a bad thing happening that's kind <laughs> right. of disgusting. Right. He said, what if we cared about these people and we wanted to see them do well and then this happens? It'll hurt like so much more, but it'll mean so much more to the reader. So that's not something that I planned out in any way. So like the first 120 pages of the book were not in the first year's worth of writing the book. Right. Got you. So you kind of backstoried the, the beauty of the two people before you got into the heart of the morass they found themselves in and had to work themselves through. Exactly. I mean, and even like a, so even like a, so I saw, so the, I agreed like, okay, we have to start by getting to know them. And so then I began, I started writing it beginning with when the two of them meet, but even that didn't quite do it. And then I said to the editor, I said, well, what if, would you be interested in knowing how Apollo's parents met? And he said, maybe, you know, if it's not boring. Um, and then I said, all right, let me try that. And then I started with them. And suddenly I thought like, oh, that's right. I'm trying to talk on some level about what's handed down from one generation to the next. So maybe I need to start out with the generation before Apollo and Emma. So you get that, you begin to get that feeling right from the start. But all that was like slow, a slow process of, of doing those, doing those things. And then after I had everything down, then I could really start to organize what should come, which scene should come before or after another scene. Hmm. We're here talking with Victor Laval about his latest book, The Changeling, an incredible novel that just grabs you. You do not want to walk away from it. You've just got to keep reading it. It takes you through changes you didn't expect to happen. Uh, I'm going to take a short break and we'll come back. We're going to be to the heart of the novel. I have a little bit of Victor reading 